It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW Sitka. Today is Thursday, September 15th, 2022. I'm Brooke Schaefer, and this is Raven News. A helicopter from Air Station Sitka medevaced a passenger from a cruise ship in Chatham Strait west of Juneau on Tuesday. The captain of the Ovation of the Seas alerted Coast Guard headquarters at about 2.30 in the afternoon that a passenger aboard the ship was experiencing cardiac symptoms. The helicopter from Air Station Sitka was on scene by 4 p.m. and hoisted the 62-year-old man and a nurse aboard. In a news release, Coast Guard Petty Officer Jared Buckmiller at the Sector Juneau Command Center complimented the crew of the Ovation of the Seas for their performance during the emergency. Sitka is cracking down on short-term rentals run by non-resident owners. KCAW's Catherine Rose reports. Short-term rentals are most often run by property owners through vacation rental sites like Airbnb and Verbo. Since 2017, the number of permitted STRs in Sitka has nearly doubled, prompting community concerns about the impact on Sitka's already tight housing market. Operating STRs in a residential zone requires a conditional use permit from the city's planning commission. Under the updated rules, new applicants must occupy the property for at least 180 days a year in order to secure an STR permit from the city. Additionally, all short-term rental permits will sunset when a property is sold. Former city administrator Keith Brady now owns a real estate business in Sitka. He urged the assembly to hold off on the code changes and look for other ways to discourage non-residents from buying Sitka properties and turning them into STRs. One idea is to increase our property taxes, but give exemptions to those who are who live here, who are residents of Sitka. So we do have a housing crisis. Trust me, I hear it. I have a lot of people on my list looking for rentals, looking to buy but I don't think this is the right way to go about doing it. So how much are STRs actually impacting Sitka's housing market? The answer isn't so simple. Earlier this month, the Alaska Department of Labor listed Sitka as the community with the second highest number of STRs in the state. But it also showed Sitka has the highest vacancy rate for long-term rentals. Planning Commission member Wendy Alderson voiced support for the ordinance and challenged that data, saying it's collected at a time of year when the rental market is in a seasonal transition. I don't know if you fill out the rental survey, if any of you have rentals, I do. And interestingly enough, when you fill out that residential rental survey, it specifies check if vacant the week of March 11th. To me, I've always thought that that indicates that, you know, it's a shoulder season. Short-term rentals are usually empty the week of early spring. And if you haven't filled your place seasonally and you're turning it over and waiting for short-term rentals, it's going to indicate that you have a vacant rental. This spring, Alderson supported a measure to put a temporary moratorium on short-term rental permits. But the freeze narrowly failed at the assembly table. So the assembly went back to the drawing board and held a town hall to get community input. The idea for new restrictions on STR permits sprung up from that meeting. Assembly member Kevin Mosier noted that the process to get Tuesday's ordinance to a final vote had been long and public. And even though some questioned whether there was enough data to demonstrate the impact of STRs on Sitka's housing market, he said they couldn't afford to wait to do something. If we wait till we have all this 100% concrete data, it's going to be too late, especially a place like Sitka, where we don't have other places to live if, if um, housing units are bought up and, and um, long term, whether through a purchase or rental, uh, are taken off the market. There's no place for people to go. Um, 
we are in a housing crisis, and this is the beginning step in trying to help uh, find solutions. Assemblymember Dave Miller, however, was conflicted. Is there a solution? I don't know. I don't know what that solution is. Just opening up land to, to build more places, I think Mr. Brady brought it up. We just can't do that. It's too expensive. The land's not, if the, if the land's not expensive enough, just to buy the two by four and a piece of plywood to, to build a lean-to will break most of us. So we can't even live under the lean-to anymore. This is, this is that decision that I'm sure whichever way I vote, I'm going to lose, uh, I'll say friendship, um, because people feel pretty strong about this. Ultimately, the Assembly passed the ordinance on a 5-0 to zero vote. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Catherine Rose. The Alaska Marine Highway System is going back to flat rates, at least for this winter. Coast Alaska's Angela Denning reports. The Alaska Department of Transportation and Public Facilities announced Friday that it would stop dynamic pricing this winter. Dynamic pricing means that as seats fill up, the more expensive they get. It's a common practice with airlines. The closer you book to departure, the higher the price. The pricing formula has been in place in the Alaska Marine Highway Service for the last two years. But DOT says the ferry service will move back to flat rates this winter. DOT was unavailable for comment on Monday. Pausing dynamic pricing is part of a new program called Reimagining AMHS Program that the state announced Friday afternoon in a press release. The state says the program will bring more transparency, flat rates, and increased communication about the Marine Highway Service. The program looks to improve service over time in three phases. The first phase, stabilization, looks to provide reliable service by increasing crew and vessel maintenance. The phase will include weekly updates to the public. The second phase, recovery, looks to add services while monitoring reliability. The third phase, full steam ahead, expects services to be restored and growth to happen. Last year, a statewide advisory board to the state's ferry system was created by the Alaska Legislature. The Alaska Marine Highway Operations Board has been meeting every two weeks since February. Winetta Ayers is the vice chair of the board. She says the board wasn't aware of the state's new program, but she supports it. I welcome this because I think it is a move towards being a more customer-centric service that will take into account um, the needs of customers as well as how uh, decisions and service interruptions and other unanticipated things may fall on the customer. She says the board will continue to work on a long-range plan and a short-term plan following that. She says the board needs to identify exactly where they want the Alaska Marine Highway Service to be in the years to come and will continue advising the state's DOT. As for going to flat rate ferry rates this winter, Ayers supports it. I think dynamic pricing has not been a very effective tool for uh, the system on a year-round basis. I think pausing dynamic pricing is a good thing. And I think an overall pricing strategy needs to be revisited. Governor Dunleavy vetoed funding for the ferry service during his tenure, $5 million in 2019, $13 million in 2020, and $8.5 million last year. The draft operating schedule for the winter ferry service was released in August. The final winter schedule is expected this week.
Reporting in Petersburg, I'm Angela Denning. The Canadian company working to develop a rare earth mineral refining complex in southern southeast Alaska announced Tuesday that it's pushing back its target opening date to late 2024. As KRBD's Reagan Miller reports, that hinges on finding a building in Ketchikan to house the plant. Yukor was aiming to have a facility dedicated to processing rare earth minerals built in Ketchikan by the end of next year. That was what it called its Alaska 2023 plan. But Yukor's chief operating officer, Mike Schreider, shared information at the annual meeting of the Economic Development Group Southeast Conference that pointed toward a different timeline, one that pushes the opening of the facility to the tail end of 2024. In a phone call the following morning, Schreider said the 2023 plan was more of a symbolic goal. What our purpose of establishing the 2023 plan was to essentially plant a stake in the ground saying this is a project that we're committed to and are going to make happen. Um, it's just that the timeline now is, you know, is stretching out a little, a little bit for, for outside reasons. And with little visible progress towards building a facility in Ketchikan from scratch, Schreider said UCOR is now aiming to house its plant in an existing building in the Ketchikan area. He didn't say where the facility might be or whether the company has any particular building in mind. Our, our plan right now is that we have to, um, we because of the 2024 um, target date now with our, with our customers, we need to move into an existing facility, which is called a brownfield facility. And um, that's the only way that we can a- achieve our schedule. Ecord chose Ketchikan as the plant's home because of its proximity to Seattle and Prince Rupert and because there's an existing workforce. It's also close to Prince of Wales Island, where the Bokan Dotson Prospect is located. Ecor hopes to build a mine on the site upstream of Kendrick Bay and send ore for processing in Ketchikan. He also said the company has secured three preliminary agreements that would supply feedstock to the processing plant. He told KRBD that Ecor couldn't announce the names of two of the entities, but one was with Vital Metals, another Canadian company that focuses on rare earth mineral production. The company started mining rare earth ore from a site in Canada's Northwest Territories last year. The proposed processing plant in Ketchikan would use a proprietary extraction technology UCOR is calling Rapid SX. UCOR CEO Pat Ryan also spoke via Zoom at the Southeast Conference on Tuesday. He touted the company's solvent extraction technique as faster and cheaper than existing mineral separation techniques like those used in China. And we're saying, let's westernize it, let's do it that much better. When you have the right tech, you can approach the, uh, the problem very carefully with uh, better throughput, better capital expenditures. And as for the mine itself, Schreider says work is ongoing. This summer, we were in Ketchikan and Prince of Wales for some mineral resource upgrade work at the, at the resource site. That's preliminary mining work aimed at figuring out how many tons of rare earth minerals actually exist at the remote site on southern Prince of Wales Island. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Reagan Miller. I'm Brooke Schaefer, and this has been Raven News.